You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, actor, author, activist, Dondre Whitfield. We first met a young Dondre on The Cosby Show when he played Robert, Vanessa Huxtable's boyfriend. From there, he would have a burgeoning career, including roles on All My Children, Real Husbands of Hollywood, and Queen Sugar. He has become a voice of activism, using his fame and platforms to address social injustice. He's also become a crusader for redefining what modern manhood looks like. He took on that issue in his new book, Male versus Man. Let me ask you first, man. I, you know, you and I, over the years, have talked about some of what you put in the book and what this crusade has been for you. So, so this is not new for you. You know, this is something I, I suspect has been bubbling for some time and you finally put it in book form. What what pushed you to finally put, you know, put it pen to paper, as we used to say, but to the keyboard? Right. <laughs> you know, I, um, my, in, in the prerequisite of the book, and I call it the, you know, it, which is really the introduction, mm-hmm. um, 
But often, I have found that in the introduction, the introduction was the, the author often pontificating about stuff that you really didn't need to know. And you could have actually went to chapter one and been okay. So I named it the prerequisite because you absolutely needed to read that before you went to chapter one, because this was really, truly going to tee up the journey that you're about to go um, on for 11 chapters. Um, And in the prerequisite, I talk about the loss of my best friend. And um, we were both riding our motorcycles and um, he was a novice rider. I was an experienced rider. Uh, You know, back then, you know, I was doing uh, all of the things that would gain the respect of the street because that's where I come from. I grew up, you know, in Brooklyn. My father was in and out of jail my entire life. And, you know, everything is about gaining your respect. And so even while I was, you know, already on television and doing some pretty accomplished things, you know, on the screen, I was doing wheelies on the freeway and, you know, and traveling over 120 miles an hour, you know, on my motorcycle. Um, um, and, and really doing some, some pretty reckless things all, um, uh, at the feet of trying to gain mm-hmm. the respect of my peers. Um, and so I had my best friend, you know, out and this was his first time on the freeway. And, um, there was this big sweeping turn that we would uh, go into with my other experienced uh, rider friends. And my flesh was saying, all right, let's go, let's do it. And my spirit was saying, not, not today, because you're on assignment. And my flesh was going, man, man just good. this is what we do. God, just, well, just tell them, just tell them. So that here, so that, so this way you can do, and you can accomplish both. And so I communicated to him, hey, big turn coming up, slow down. I'm going to go up. You slow down. Go into this big sweeping turn, knee down, 85 miles per hour, biggest adrenaline rush ever. And of course, the need for the respect. Get through that turn, get to the light. My boy and I high five. My best friend, again, this novice writer, look back. Nothing. A car comes up beside us, tells us, hey, you guys got a bike down back there. Quickly turn around. Look, my best friend is in the middle of the freeway. His motorcycle is up against the railing. And I get to him. His eyes are fluttering. He's breathing heavy. And the first thing I said to him, it just came over me. I said, you can't leave here. You got a wife, you got two kids. My wife is pregnant with my first child. You haven't even met her yet. You cannot leave here. This story is a full story, but I'm gonna pay our audience the the benefit of uh, being mindful of time. But I lost my friend that day. And it was a jail like I can't explain the jail of uh, the mental and spiritual jail that you get confined to. 
And I did 11 years of hard time in that jail, but I never gave myself the benefit of even acknowledging it because in my mind, I had taken away a husband from a wife, a father from two children, a son from a mother, and a brother from a sister. And it wasn't until I sat down his children, who were at that time seven years old, his son was seven years old. And it wasn't until 11 years later where I I sat them in my home and told them, the dirty business of everything that went through my mind in that moment where it felt like I had abandoned their father. And they said, Uncle Dre, we forgive you because our father's death was not your fault. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got their forgiveness that I began to forgive myself. But that 11 year journey That 11-year sentence in that emotional and spiritual jail cell got me to understand what can happen when a man abandons his assignment. No, I don't know what would have happened if I had stayed back there with him. Who knows if both of us would have perished because they never found out what, what truly happened. All I know is, is that my assignment as a man that day went unfulfilled and I lost my best friend, my brother, on that day. And I vowed that after that, that I would never abandon my post again. And looking at my father and how I didn't get messaging of manhood, being at that deficit, my father being in and out of jail my entire life and trying to heal myself of my anger toward him, which is really profound pain, I realized that instead of looking at my father like the 70-year-old version of himself, I had to look at my father like the seven-year-old version of himself that never got what he needed to matriculate into manhood either. So when I saw him that way, he became like a brother that was at a deficit also. And so it wasn't incumbent upon me to become a son to him, even though we were estranged from each other for 20 years. Because I had the gift of understanding, it was incumbent upon me to give him understanding and to be a brother to him. So this book was written out of paying homage to little him. If he had gotten the information and instruction that he needed, he would have been able to matriculate into manhood. And if God forbid, I get called home sooner than anticipated, my son has a playbook for manhood that he can go to directly in order for him to get to his, his intended destination. I want to talk to you about what you say in the prerequisite about failure. But before I do that, what you said strikes me in a way I, I want to ask this. When you talk about the freedom from jail, when, when your friends, kids forgave you by saying we never blamed you, right? Um, yet freedom can be different to different people. I'm curious, even with that forgiveness, um, how much do you still grapple with the idea? I mean, to see something like that, to be present in that moment is something that never leaves you. Even, you know, the best of us can say, okay, it wasn't my fault, but, but that shapes you, that stays with you, that kind of walks the rest of your life. 
Where do you sit with that? It is a uh, it's a great word you use was grapple because I you know you you wrestle with that daily. I was talking to years ago uh, my brother D Nice and I we had a conversation uh, about this very thing because we share in the trauma of feeling like we had something to do with one of our brothers leaving this earth. You know, D was in an argument with, you know, with, a, with, a, with another brother and, and Scott LaRock came over to his defense and was subsequently shot. So you can very well imagine how D was feeling that he was responsible for Scott's death. Well, likewise, I always felt like I was responsible for my brother Amon's death. His last name was Parker, my 16-year-old daughter, who my wife was pregnant with at that time. Her name is Parker, named after him. So there isn't a day that I that goes by that I don't think about him because every day I call out the name of Parker. Allowing myself grace in the forgiveness of what I know was a not so great decision then. But I could hear my friend now every single day going, bro, you got to get to work, man. Every single day, the work that I do in matriculating males into manhood and elevating men who are already walking in it and informing women about the difference between males and men is how I honor my brother's life. With that being said, there's still the daily grapple of, you know, missing him, feeling like I wish I had come to this version of myself and my manhood at that, at that time. Um, and honestly speaking, you know, I'm going to be starting a, uh, male versus man podcast shortly. And my co-host is his son. Mm-hmm. Because what I want is I want people to understand what manhood looks like, mm-hmm. that we can be emotional that we can be full of tears when we don't perform the way we expect ourselves to perform, that we should ask for forgiveness. In his case, that we should extend Mm. forgiveness, that we should extend grace. And that everything that happens to us is sort of, you know, an associate's and a bachelor's and a master's and a doctorate degree of manhood and how we elevate ourselves. So all of these things, you know, again, to your point of grappling with it every single day, I have to figure out what does all of this mean in its totality? Where does this take me? So that is a daily thing. And my ritual for that is that each night when my wife is down, when my my children are down, when the, you know, when the animals in the house are down, I go to my quiet space in in the house and I go over the footage of my day and critique the performance of my manhood. 
The idea behind that is to make sure that the version of Dondre that you speak to today is not the version of Dondre that you speak to tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I essentially level myself up daily. So that also is a part of the, the grappling. And, and it's, it's important to tell people, not just men, but you shouldn't be the same person you were yesterday, a week ago, Absolutely. a year ago, a decade ago. Um, you know, what's funny, uh, as I thought about it and I watched not only you become an author on the grind and on the tour, but what I saw as creating a crusade, a calling, something that was bigger than just selling this book. You know, I watched you from afar and recalled some of, again, the conversations that you and I and Boris Kojo and, and, and Lorenz Tate would sit around if we were at Essence or whatever and, you know, have this same conversation. What I think we're seeing and what you are pushing is a redefining of manhood. You know, I turned 60 this year. And certainly my generation, but absolutely the generation before me was very direct in what they saw as manhood. And if you failed on any portion of that ladder, you yes. were seen as a lesser male. And that is that old stodgy kind of traditional don't cry, bucket up, doesn't matter. You know, don't, yes. doesn't matter what your wife thinks, your children think, you know, you are the man of the house, you are in control. Um, how, are you seeing that shift? Are you seeing that change, particularly among uh, men of color? You know, it's so interesting that you asked, first of all, uh, you know, when you talked about the calling. So I often tell people that acting is my passion, but activation is my purpose. I have a great many passions. Golf is a passion. Scuba diving is a passion. Horseback riding is a passion. None of those are my purpose. Mm -hmm. My passions serve me. My purpose serves others. When you and I would have, and by the way, I want you to know that, and I've said this to you, I, you know, um, on, a, on many occasions, that you were one of the, the few brothers that I had on television that I could look to as a, uh, as a hallmark of what manhood looked like because you always stood in truth. You always had integrity. You never allowed yourself to change in your environment. In fact, you did everything to make sure that you were standing as a man so that you could evoke change in the environment. So I want to make sure that I'm one of those men too. You never know who's looking. I, I'm sure that you probably never, never knew that I was one of the ones watching you, you know, as an example of what manhood was, you know, often we, we've been taught that manhood really is sexuality. Um, and masculinity. So my sexuality, look how many women I slept with. See what kind of man I am. See what kind of man I am. Look, look how much I bench press. See what kind of man I am. See what kind of man I am. And none of those have, they have nothing to do with manhood. In the book, I talk about how males look to be served while men look to be of service. Our job as men 
is to be of service to the women and children in our lives, not just our women and our children, but all women and all children. And further, our assignment is to make sure that we're constantly facilitating a space of growth for our brothers to elevate themselves, right? As loving but firm accountability partners, right? So whenever we get around and, you know, those Essence Fests conversations like, you know, you know, that, that, that you mentioned, you know, with, with Boris and, you know, and Lorenz, you know, we were taught some very outdated concepts about what manhood is. And what I wanted everyone to have, including our sisters, by the way, because this book is not just for us. This book is for our sisters, too. Our sisters get inappropriately partnered because they don't know what manhood is. They don't know the difference between a male and a man. I, I often tell people, look, I, in order for me to achieve the title of male, I only needed two things at birth, a penis and a pulse. That's it. And that categorized me as a male. What categorizes me as a man is purpose and precision. My purpose is to be a servant leader. And my precision is about how well I serve in that capacity. But if you don't know that, then number one, you have no idea how to grow into that because you don't have the information and instruction in order to get there. And if you are a woman, you have no idea what you're looking for in a partner because you don't even know what the definition of a man is. So again, this book was really about elevating our brothers, but in truly informing our sisters. And for me, to your, your, your point earl earlier, this is truly a calling. When I die, people will not talk about my acting career first. They're going to talk about being an agent for change. When we come back, balancing man versus male, and we'll look at Dondre's day job, acting, and why he's been very intentional on the roles he selects. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let me ask you about the traditional roles, though, because we should not relegate some of those things to the back burner, right? No. There are things that all of us as men understand that this is frontline for us too. And frankly, your wife, your daughter, your sister doesn't want it to be too far back. So there is a want to find a balance, is there not? Yes, indeed. And the balance in that is that I tell people often that I am the leader of my house. Not because I tell people what to do, but because I show people what to do. I am the model that everyone in my house mirrors, my wife included. Yeah, of course, for my children, but even great leaders need leadership. My my wife is a great leader, but she needs leadership too, right? So my wife often submits to my leadership. And as a great leader, I often submit to her leadership right? Then there's the the space of being a protector, right? We often look at being the protector provider, particularly the provider piece. Mm -hmm. We often look at the provider piece as uh, only being being able to provide financially. Monetarily, yep. Right? So meaning 
how I feed my family. Well, I feed my, my family on a number of fronts. I feed my family spiritually. That's being a provider also. I feed my family emotionally. That's being a provider also. I feed my family mentally. That's being a provider also. And then, of course, as the protector, <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know, for those who don't know, my wife, Sally Richardson Whitfield, who for years, great actress, now a phenomenal director, we go someplace and it'll be just the two of us. And I've had people say, you guys don't travel with security? I said, homeboy, I am the security. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I dare anybody to step out of line when it comes to my wife. And trust me, I have had to have I have had to grab a number of brothers under the armpit just like this based on them getting out of position because they you know they lost their consciousness because they had this woman in front of them that they had a poster of on 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 their wall and and I have had to step in as the protector. So to your point, there are some concepts that we've learned from day one that will never be outdated. You are always going to be the protector provider of your house. And your job is to make sure that you serve in that capacity as best you possibly can. I want to talk to you about brotherhood, because one of the things that I'm trying to, to get us to think about is the idea of redefining that too. Um, You know, there is this sense of brotherhood amongst particularly black men. But if you give somebody a hug, there was this sense of you had to give them a pound in the back just to make sure that it was masculine enough. If you say, I love you, there's got to be some other reason to say it other than, bruh, I love you. You know, um, I'm trying to get us to the idea of we don't need those other things. If I just want to hug you because I love you, man, boom, let me give it to you. I don't need to pound you, slap you in the head. It's just a hug. How do we get to that point and still keep those things that are of import to us that define, quote unquote, manhood? There, There has to be a culture shift for us. Yeah, you know, the culture shift for me, I'm very intentional about this. I'm so glad that you, it's one of the reasons why I loved you as a journalist, because you always get to the meat of issues that facilitate transformation. The thing that I'm intentional about is we need to start performing triage on each other. Mm -hmm. We, We have a great deal of PTSD, not just from other communities or other groups that we experience, but our experience of each other. So every single day, here's what I do. When I go outside my my home with my sisters, the first thing I do is, sister, I'm a married man, so I'm not here to cover you. My my job is to cover, cover you. If you need a brother, I am here. You need anything right now? No? Okay, no problem. I'm going to be in the store. If you need anything, you come and find me. I got you. Sister, love you. Boom. Gone. That makes a, a dynamic shift in the way she sees her brothers. Because it's unlike an experience that she's had in a while and unlike what she continues to paint inside her head. So my job is to replace the traumatic experiences with something that is phenomenally loving. With my brothers, 
I immediately say, my brother, how you doing? And I, and I, and I get to him. It's not like in passing. So he's going this way. I'm like, brother, what's going on? And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about eye contact. My brother, how you feeling? You good? All right, fam. Hey, man. Love you. You have no idea what that love you does to uh, actually, yes, you do. <laughs> you can very well imagine saying that to a brother that you don't have a personal relationship <laughs> with and saying, love you and stand there and wait because I'm waiting for some sort of reciprocation. So I don't give it to love you and then let you off the hook by leaving. I'm waiting for something to come back because this is brotherhood. My, my, my brother, Hassani Pettiford and I, we often say that every man needs a man. Mm -hmm. We need each other, right? This is a part of our brotherhood, our brotherly accountability for one another because we have to become, I, I often say that to folks when I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in a room, I go, who are the most loving people on the face of this planet? And they go, black people. I'm like, hmm, it's interesting because right now, I haven't felt any of that yet, <laughs> right? How can we be the most loving people on the planet and yet it's so difficult for us to love each other? When, a, you know, a brother comes up to you, he gives you the, you know, right. so, you know, I, I love you, but, you know, back up, bro, because I don't want this to be a homophobic, you know, I want this to be no homosexual experience. You know, I don't want us to be too close. I want you to feel my strength, you know, so, you know, uh, so I, I got you, but you know, back up just a little bit. Now, when I when I hug you, I'm coming in for the full heart to heart, chest to chest hug, so that you feel the intention of my love. We, and it we, has absolutely nothing to do with my sexuality. We also have to be able to acknowledge our pain and our inability to find that manhood, to, because to your point earlier. We, we, we didn't have it modeled. So I lost my dad suddenly when I was 11, died of a heart attack. Now, you know, you are in a home with a mother who's doing her best to fill both slots for you. I tell a story. My mom uh, one day saw me watching a baseball game and she probably thought, oh, you know, he's lonely. His dad's not here, so I'm going to sit down and watch it with him. She didn't know a whole lot about sports, so somebody hits a home run, and she goes, ah, oh, and then she goes, was he black? Because she, she, she felt like, look, I ain't cheering for nobody else. And, it, and at that point, I said, Mama, it's okay. <laughs> I'm good. But I had to, and I don't know that I have fully really come to the understanding of what my father leaving the way he left did for and to me. I am eternally grateful for a mentor who lived two houses away from me, who taught me manhood, and who is as much of a family member to me and his entire family than any blood relative. But I know that there are some things inside of me that I still have to deal with. Yes. How do we get ourselves, let alone friends, relatives, loved ones, to a point of understanding that 
there are things inside of us that keep us from being the best person, and in our cases, males we can be. Man, let me tell you something. This is so good because I had to, this was just prior to me releasing Male versus Man. And my mother had come for a visit. Um, and I had to have a conversation with my mom that I had never had before. And in the book, I talk about how my mother taught me how to become a great citizen. She taught me how to be responsible, how to be loving, how to be generous, how to be kind, how to be compassionate. What my mother couldn't teach me was how to be something she was not. Mm -hmm. And when she came to that part of the book, it was devastating. And what I had to communicate to my mother in the most loving but truthful way possible was that it wasn't a judgment against her. It was simply an assessment and that I needed to have men who would teach me what it was to be a man. They knew what that journey was every single day. And I'm crying inside for you because if I have it, if if I have it correct, you lost your father at 11 years old. My son is 11 years old. Mm-hmm. When you said that, I was devastated for little you because I'm thinking about my son, who is 11 years old right now, and he would be devastated. Yeah, And the void that that leaves in a, a, a boy's life when his model is gone. It also brings a reality of what life is to you much quicker than I think you need to as a child. Yes. I, it, it, Particularly when they put on you that now you're the man of the house. Now you're the man of the house. And also, you know, up until then, it was you were taught from school fun with Dick and Jane. This is a nuclear family. This is life is wonderful. And then all of a sudden you realize, no, that's what they sell you. But that ain't always reality. Mm -hmm. So I think that has, I, I know that has made me look at life a certain way. You know, there's a certain reality that I have with my persona. Yes. That doesn't always allow me the kind of fairy tale that maybe sometimes we need along the way. Yes. Um, but one of the things I think most interesting is just the idea of fatherhood. You know, you and I talk about our kids all the time. Um, tell me what fatherhood has done for you um, as a man, because uh, one of the things I remind people of is the change at every chapter in your life you should have. And fatherhood is one of those things. I saw Kobe Bryant change. Yes. The the moment those kids came into his life, I did not know him well, didn't really know him at all, but I'd met him. Mm -hmm. And I recall the way he dealt with me 
prior to having prior me, to and the way he dealt with me after and it was night night and day degrees. yeah absolutely it's so interesting because when rest in peace to uh brother kobe when he passed i said to people because uh, you know people was you know well, how do you you know how do you feel and 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 i made a post about it because so many people were hurting so many people were grieving and what i said was i was less uh impressed with mamba and more impressed with the man yes because he had come into a space of manhood when and and i think it was you know god god's supremely divine plan for him to have girls <laughs> uh being this great advocate for you know ultimately becoming this great advocate for women's sports and you know women's basketball and and, and becoming this you know this juggernaut of a of a coach and um and 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 having a completely different perspective and to your point fatherhood changes us in a way that nothing really could activate us i remember when my daughter was born and i held her in my arms and i remember saying to myself whoa this just got real mm. like on another level like marrying my wife you know us buying a house and doing all the grown up stuff and everything was one thing but it was something about having this life that i knew i was responsible for where manhood was being summoned up in a completely different way my job and i tell my son this every single day i say dre i am your drill instructor for manhood my job is to turn you into the baddest man on the planet i'm going to give you everything i got and then i'm going to require you to go out and get even more to make yourself the best man you can possibly be because that's what god is calling us to be but for my daughter i am her dresser i can't teach her how to be a woman why cuz i'm not one that's my wife's job but my contribution to my daughter is that i am the dress rehearsal mm-hmm. for what a healthy relationship with a man looks like i can give my daughter language that will activate or deactivate a man i am the model for what manhood looks like for her so that she can readily identify one when the time comes So me being in the process of her development is extremely important cuz many of our sisters miss out on that and subsequently to my point earlier is why many of them become inappropriately partnered. And interestingly enough you can't as a male often because I I check brothers who don't have daughters. There is a definition of how you deal with women from the moment you have a daughter. Mhm. even if you love your wife dearly love your mother dearly there is something that changes shifts recalibrates 
And not just the sexual get away from my dog, not just that. There is a Mm -hmm. different kind of respect and understanding that I think you derive from your relationship, if it's healthy, with your daughter that you can't have with any other female in your life. And it has changed in a bigger way uh, for me, the way I deal with women, the way I look and speak and talk and understand women. And, and there are still those times I don't understand them at all, but <laughs> but it, it it there is a recalibration. Yes. There is a recalibration. Let me let me take you to to your day job real quick. Man. Yes. Um, I have always, and I have said this to you because we have always been, you know, mutual admiration society, and and you know there are a group of brothers that I know. We always say, "Hey, man, keep it up." good job, you know, in your corner. I've always appreciated the roles that you have taken um, and what you brought to them. Uh, Because I know, particularly early on, you had to make some conscious decisions of, I'm going to let that check stay on the table. I'm not taking that role. Talk to me about um, if you have seen any shifts in, in Hollywood. We hear about it, but what have you seen? You know, it's interesting um, that we're having this conversation because I have had some, um, I've played some uh, some roles that I thought were important in the way that we see men in our community. Um, one job in particular, you know, um, One job really broke my heart. And, you know, many people were like, well, you know, don't talk about that because then you're speaking about, you know, the people who created it or wrote it or produced it. Or... And I'm a man. I have, to, I have to speak truth. If I don't speak truth, I give permission to those to be without truth. Mm -hmm. And this job really broke my heart because, you know, I had had a conversation one season with one of the uh, showrunners and she happened to be a white woman. And she said, you know, this character that I was playing, who was this salt of the earth, guy who, you know, was the cornerstone of, you know, the community. She said, we got to dirty him up a little bit. I said, okay, Uh, may I ask why? And she said, he's a little too good. It's a little too nice. Now, I'm not going to put this off on this white woman, because really the burden of the show and its creative trajectory was guided by black people. And I said to her, because I didn't have the benefit of a conversation with the black folks, I said, think about what we're saying if we do this. I said, 
This character right now, if he were white, he'd be named McDreamy. I said, but the McDreamy that's on television, they don't talk about dirtying him up. You know why? Because they don't debate whether he's too nice or too good because they believe that white males can be that nice and can be that good. I can't tell you how many times during the playing of that role where I would see on social media, our own people, our own sisters going, I don't trust this brother. Because no brother is that good. Something has got to be wrong with him. And I'll never forget, they started doing all of these things that went against everything that we had been establishing about him, his integrity, his dedication to community, all of those things were being compromised. We already had enough males on the show. We didn't need one more. But somehow they thought it necessary to use this man as sort of a poster child for what you're always going to experience with black men. That if you just stand by, if you're just patient, if you just wait, eventually they're all the same. They think with their head, they compromise their community, compromise their integrity and sell out the women in their life. And I was devastated by it. And I said, this is not, this can't be my home. And so subsequently what came out of that was a, a mutual parting of the ways. And I said, I'm never going to put myself in that position again. And to your point, I have left, much to my wife's chagrin, <laughs> I have left plenty of checks on the table because I refuse to play one more role that shows us in this monolithic, toxic, uh, filtered way on screen. So my, my purpose work is to first triage us off the screen so that I can begin to produce some roles that show us in this light on the screen. Let me ask you one other thing before we let you go, man. And that is, you mentioned your lovely wife and, and how she has shifted from um, in, in front of the camera to behind the camera. She is, uh, it, it seems like every week I'm looking at her in some exotic location, somewhere different you know, um, directing. Uh, and it's something I know she has looked at and talked about for some time. So she's starting to really kind of live that dream. Um, is that something you would want to do down the line? You know, it's so interesting. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, you're good at this, man. Uh, <laughs> I thought about directing way before my wife even thought about directing. And the difference between our trajectories in that space is that she did uh, a show called Eureka, where she was a um, she was a uh, a regular for a number of years. And when you uh, garner that space, then they sort of you know 
they're open to letting you, you know, uh, experiment at being at the helm, being, you know, a, a, having a, an episode to direct. Um, and each time I was on a show where we would get to that place, we'd be canceled. Um, and then, you know, with my job on Queen Sugar, um, the directorial mandate, ironically mandate, on that show was that women, mm -hmm. uh, it was a woman date. <laughs> so only women uh, are allowed to um, direct, you know, on Queen Sugar. Um, and so while I was there, uh, I never had an opportunity to, to direct there, but I suspect um, that um, my, because I love storytelling and I love being able to uh, choreograph the movements. I know what actors have to endure. Um, and so I know that I'm going to be a phenomenal director. So to answer your, your question, yeah, I absolutely do know that uh, directing is uh, right around the corner. And, and I ask that because I know that too for you. Uh, you know, I, I watch you again from afar and then obviously I got to know you and I continue to watch you. And what I've always appreciated is you have attacked this as a craft, not as a job. Um, and that's two different things. And so yes. I appreciate that you have uh, learned and continue to learn the craft of acting. And by acting, I mean in its totality, not just the actor, but the acting of the creation of what will ultimately be um, the content and the tale. And so uh, I appreciate that. But more than anything, I appreciate the crusade and the calling that you have found or that has found you, whichever way the universe allows for it, man. And, um, you know, uh, I want to be a part of whatever you do. So, you, you know, anytime you feel like it, just give a call and let me say without a pound on the back, I love you, brother. And I love you, bro. <laughs> chest to chest, heart to heart, I love you. And I told you at that Essence Fest um, that we were going to be putting something together. So you are already in it. So I'm glad to hear you say that you're committed to it because you're in it. Always good to know you got some brothers in your corner. Another big thanks to my man, Dondre Whitfield. Next week, we look at breast cancer in black women with two people who've engaged in the fight. Ironically, they share more than just that journey. They both are beloved TV personalities that started their careers by hosting BET's Teen Summit. Lisa Johnson and Ananda Lewis sit down with me to talk about staring down cancer and we'll reminisce on the good old days at BET. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. I'm 
Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl, go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.